So they've given me this mouse that should... Oh, look at that. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, so with regard to my comment before we sat, um, part of it kind of turns on a conversation I once had with Joseph Goldstein where I asked what was the difference between desire and right effort, you know, because it's so easy to, in meditation to kind of slip into trying to make it happen, make, trying to become still, trying to have a certain experience, trying to change one's stance in some fashion. And he said something that was really useful, which was that, um, that desire is that energy that wishes for something to be different, right? To bring into being something that's not yet present, or its cousin aversion, which is the wish for something present to to go away. And by contrast, right effort, he said, was always the effort to know what was already present. So it's an interesting thing because mindfulness takes effort, right? We need to bring energy into the equation. But it's so easy for that energy to be enlisted in our tendency to try to manipulate or control experience. So, you know, just examining where is the effort going? You know, is it going to this moment? Or am I doing it out of a secret desire to try to trade it for something a little bit better? You know, so it's an interesting place to to begin to explore. So, um, are you all in the same seats, or is there somebody near you you have not yet been introduced to? Yeah. So before diving headlong in, um, any uh, flotsam from this morning? Any uh, ruminations, questions, comments, invective, whatever? Yeah. Effort becomes trying to do the exercise right. 
trying to follow your instructions. And then that just takes me, you know, away from myself. I should just shut up, really. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is one of the interesting paradoxes, right, in our practice, right? I mean, it's seen in so many different ways, which is, you know, we're learning to stop striving, but it takes so damn much effort to do it, you know? And what is it then that we're practicing? Yeah. You're saying? And so the meditation is a respite from this? Is that what you were saying? So sometimes, it, whether we like it or not, our practice is nothing more than the willingness to be with the suffering that comes. And to know when suffering, when to know suffering as suffering, but all you know, conversely, to know the absence of suffering in those moments when there is no suffering as well. You know, you know I think about um, the Tin Man, you know, who said. Now I know I have a heart because I can feel it breaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, I go back to the kid who was cured of his phobia of water. Hey, if it works, I've got nothing more to say. And honestly, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a psychotherapist, but um, and I'm supposed to understand how it works. But honest to God, it is a mystery to me. So um, how we heal is it's really important. I find the best explication of this to be found, frankly, in the Buddhist model more than in any other model. But, you know, if it works, I've got no, nothing more to say about it. And I apologize about the crystals. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, here's another pithy quote. Um, none of these are intended to cheer you up, but I think they're kind of kind of fun. This is from Ursula Le Guin. Uh, suffering is a misunderstanding. 
It exists. It's real. I can call it a misunderstanding, but I can't pretend that it doesn't exist or will ever cease to exist. Suffering is the condition on which we live, and when it comes, you know it. You know it is the truth. Of course, it's right to cure diseases, to prevent hunger and injustice, as the social organism does. But no society can change the nature of existence. We can't prevent suffering. This pain and that pain, yes, but not pain. A society can only relieve social suffering, unnecessary suffering. The rest remains, the root, the reality. All of us here are going to know grief. If we live 50 years, we'll have known pain for 50 years. And yet, I wonder if it isn't all a misunderstanding, this grasping after happiness, this fear of pain. If instead of fearing it and running from it, one could get through it, go beyond it. There is something beyond it. It's the self that suffers, and there is a place where the self ceases. I don't know how to say it, but I believe that the reality, the truth that I recognize in suffering, as I don't in comfort and happiness, that the reality of pain is not pain. If you can get through it, if you can endure it all the way. Dangerously close to Buddhism, right? You know, where I think she departs a little bit is this notion of just enduring it. You know, there, there's more to be said than simple endurance. So let's talk, let's talk about Buddhism, because, you know, we're at the study center. So, um, Again, most of my comments are on Theravadan Buddhism, um, just because I think that that language tends to be the most explicit. Um, in that tradition, again, our focus is on human experience. Experience, not on objective truth, right? Or anything abstract. And in this sense, it's centered on the problem of suffering itself, not on cognition, not on motivation, all of the other possible objects of other systems of psychology. And in the Buddhist model, and I know this is familiar to, to most of you, our existence is characterized by three marks, right? The three marks are anicca, anatta, and dukkha, or impermanence, the absence of an enduring self-nature, and the presence of suffering. So, anicca, impermanence, that all things are subject to change. Right? And again, we're talking about inexperience. We're not, not talking about external reality. Nothing really lasts. Right? Everything seems to be coming and going, and that everything that is created, everything that arises, all conditioned phenomena have an arising, some duration, and then some cessation and are replaced by something else. Everything that is born ultimately dies. All that arises does so in dependence on something else. Right? So in this case, it's useful to note that suffering is not due to impermanence. Right? It's not the fact of the impermanence that is our problem. The problem is our relationship to it. Right? being out of step with this fact of existence. 
which is to say our misdirected efforts to find some kind of permanent place that is immune from change, which can't be found. And this is actually a cause of our anxiety, right? Because we are really constantly seeking some permanent refuge, some kind of safety, some place where we can rest indefinitely, and that cannot be found. It may work for a period, but not for very long. Right? And all of our efforts are kind of undermined by the fact that nothing lasts for very long. Um, the lack of dependent, independent existence is well described in the concept of paticca samupada. I'm not going to go deeply into this, of dependent origination. Um, well described in the uh, familiar wheel of origination. And just very briefly, um, this is a kind of a, a wheel that describes the arising of suffering through a concatenation of, of causes. And um, I'll just go through these. That ignorance leads to mental formations, which leads to individual consciousness, and the formation of personal mind and body, giving rise to the six senses, which give rise to cravings and clinging, and the desire for further becoming, which leads to rebirth, aging, dying, and more ignorance. And the wheel continues to spin. So just a word on this. This all looks like A to B, B to C, and so on. And my understanding of uh, causality in the Buddhist system is not like a series of dominoes where one knocks over the next. Rather, it's the whole notion that the existence of, all, of almost any of these phenomena is dependent on other phenomena, and that one arises, the other arises. When one ceases, when one condition ceases, uh, the other will cease to be as well. So when we're talking about what causes what, um, I think of this um, chain of causality as being more like um, the way in which um, the posts of a teepee support one another. Um, you remove one and the others fall, rather than it being a kind of a chain reaction of things. This um, way of describing causality and the arising of suffering is in some respects, I think, at the heart of what's meant by the middle way. You know, we like to think about the middle way and apply it to any number of things, you know, not to give in to excess nor to deprivation and so on. But I think this view of causality is an effort to reconcile um, some kind of dispute that existed certainly in the time of the Buddha, a dispute between two prevailing worldviews, one which was of strict determinism, right, that we talked about in the Upanishadic tradition, and the other was kind of a strict indeterminism, which was championed by the, the privileged classes of the day, who basically rejected religion and kind of went headlong into hedonism. This is a way of actually recognizing that where we are is absolutely a product of everything else that has gone on before, right? That our, per, our current circumstances are not random. They're a consequence of previous causes and conditions, many of which were our own decisions and our own actions. But the fact that we are where we are as a consequence of causes and conditions could be taken to mean that we're somehow helpless to what happens next. And instead, what, what the Buddha offered that was kind of radical is some understanding that, um, that when we understand 
causes and conditions. Even though we are inheritors of everything that has gone before, we have the capacity to begin to influence what happens next by what we do. Right? So we're not free of what has happened in the past. We can't suddenly um, reinvent ourselves fully. But understanding causes and conditions allows us a little bit of purchase so that we can begin to influence conditioning going forward. So this is really the middle way then between strict determinism and indeterminism. It recognizes that we are inescapably tied to what has happened before, but it does not determine our future irrevocably. So this is, um, to me, a kind of a very realistic and sober appraisal of our situation, but it is also quite hopeful because it says things can get better, right? So um, here's something from one of the suttas. Um... Okay, this stopped working. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's what yep. Yeah. And I'm gonna I'm gonna distract myself again. Um years ago I'd been teaching a course with Bill Morgan. I think it was on the Four Noble Truths or something. And at the time we were meeting in his Cambridge apartment. And um we had various guests coming in, one of whom was a, a colleague of mine, Phil Arano. And he was teaching that day and one of the students who was a kind of a, a very seasoned uh, psychologist who taught in a local graduate school interrupted Phil because you know there was all of this technical stuff and 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 these peculiar ways that were I mean this meditation stuff is peculiar to do you know and and he finally interrupted and, and he asked Phil he said why are we doing this and Phil thought for a moment and he gave the best answer he said uh, he said things get better <sighs> right things get better. And it's really interesting to contemplate how do things get better? Um, And again, as a bit of an aside, um, I think too much about these things, but I'm really curious, what is this good for? What is this practice good for? How does it work? Because in many respects, it's been nothing but a massive disappointment. You know? All of this time, and I have yet to explode in a blazing white flash of perfection. You know, it has not solved all of my problems. And in fact, who was it? Uh, Philip Kaplow-Roshi was asked um, by a student about how does this solve our problems? How does Zen practice solve the problems? And uh, Kaplow-Roshi said, not only does it not solve your problems, it reveals them, you know? So it has not succeeded in solving problems. So what does it actually do for us? It's a bit of a bait and switch, isn't it? We get into this for one set of reasons, only to find out that what it's really offering is something a little bit different. You know, we get into this. uh, This is what Barry Maggot called our secret practice. He was a student of Joko, Joko Beck's. And the secret practice is what I think of as 
both our original motivation for practice and the kind of enduring um, unexpressed wishes that we're really trying to enable through our practice. You know, what I'm going to get. You know, how it's going to make me a better person. It's going to be enlisted in my enterprise for for self-improvement or I'm going to be rid of my temper or, you know, there's so much that we want and we do this because we think it's going to deliver. And that's, it's really appropriate, right? It's appropriate that it should be some kind of an aversion or desire that brings us into the practice or we would never do it. If we had no desire for things to be different from how they, how they are, why would we bother, right? But what's a bit tricky is that we continue, when we continue, as we continue to practice, um, those secret agendas have a way of influencing us, you know, and can direct our practice in ways that are kind of unseen because we're up to something. We're trying to make something happen. We've got a concept of what it's going to deliver, and then we try to aim that aim our practice in that direction. Um, for me, one of those elements was that um, I'd been reading all of this Zen stuff when I was quite young, and I thought, boy, I want that. And then I had my first experience with a, a hallucinogen. I had a, an LSD experience, which was... Um, Profound, you know. I mean, it it was full of all the psychedelic crap. But in the middle of it, there was uh, I I didn't have the language for it at the time, but there really was a kind of a an incredible sense of freedom and a and a connection to something that felt more real than anything I had ever known. And I thought, oh, this is what it's talking about. So my meditation practice for years was maybe not even consciously directed at trying to recreate that experience, right? That's what I want. That's what it's about. I should be able to reside in that place. And meditation has never been like an acid trip, (laughs) you know? And it's not that those insights were completely unrelated or false, but there is a way that we're practicing because we are aiming towards some idea about what it is, what it's meant to be. And if we continue to practice then maybe gradually our false motivations, as Kaplow was suggesting, uh, become revealed to us. Right? And there's a bit of a, a disappointment in that process. Joko Beck talks about this as well. She talks about how, um, you know, in the beginning we have whatever our principal motivations are, but somewhere after we've been practicing for a while, things begin to shift and we get a little disappointed because we realize we're just not going to get really much of anything from it, you know? It's a kind of an uncompromising view she has of practice. But basically what she's suggesting is that we're, what we're learning to do is just begin to illuminate all of the trips that we're laying on ourselves, all of the manipulations and all of the formations and ambitions that are constantly steering us away from life as it actually is. And only in the process of seeing it and instead dropping directly into this moment without compromise can we begin to face life exactly as it is, which is not the life that we create in our fantasies. Right? It's much more difficult and much more complicated. Right? Okay. I distracted myself. So... 
I have a quote here, and I'm not quite sure why, but the, it's in my notes, so I must, I must obey. This is from um, one of the suttas. It's with sensual desire for the reason. It, it's with sensual, sensual desire for the, for the reason that kings quarrel with kings, nobles with nobles, priests with priests, householders with householders, mother with child, child with mother, father with child, child with father, brother with brother, sister with sister. He needed a better editor, I think. Um, and then in their quarrels, brawls, and disputes, they attack one another with fists or with clods or with sticks or with knives so that they incur death and deadly pain. Now this mass of stress and suffering visible here and now has sensual desire for its reason. The reason is simply sensual desire. So this is basically suggesting how unexamined desire gives rise to this, this cycle of becoming. Um, you know, the second noble truth is basically the diagnosis. Right? The first noble truth is simple observation of the fact of suffering in our experience. The second noble truth being that it is related to desire. Now, the way that I've often uh, heard this described is that, sens- that it's desire for sense pleasure. And I think this is really very narrow. Um, I think there are all kinds of craving, uh, including craving just to feel better, to be rid of um, disorder. But in the Buddhist view, there's all kinds of clinging, and we can cling to everything, clinging meaning in some respects um, identification with. One of the most pernicious of these is clinging to views, right? Um, We hold so many opinions, and we treasure them, and we use them to distinguish ourselves from other people, to feel inferior to or superior to, to define who we are, right? To kind of a plant a flag in our own identity. And in fact, the most difficult and uh, intractable of these views is the views that we hold about ourselves. So there are those views that are simply, you know, opinions, you know, like I... I'm superior to my colleagues, and yet they're the ones who are getting the promotions. Or I am worthless, and if anybody ever discovered my true self, nobody would ever love me. Or, you know, countless, countless views that we're all holding. Um, And when you get right down to it, the most intractable of all of these is, of course, the view that we are who we think we are that we have some kind of an independent and autonomous self separate from the flow of experience. And that this has a way of, um, in a sense, um, appropriating all experience to it. Once the self arises in the flow of experience, it becomes the basis on which all else is measured and judged. You know, it begins to take ownership of even what were, uh, in some respects, impersonal events. We can also cling to precepts and practices, which is to say clinging to fixed ways of doing things, clinging to doctrines about the self. For instance, the the Buddha was kind of adamant that that we not cling either to the idea that we have a self or a true identity or that we don't. That either we are the doer and the author of our actions you know, that's one extreme, or the recipient of the consequences of our actions, or that, it's, uh, that we are not the recipient or the cause of our actions. Both of these, he said, were erroneous views of the self. Um, 
we can be craving for just to become something more, you know, to plant a flag and have some kind of an enduring importance to ourselves and to other people, right? Uh, wanting to be known, wanting to be seen, maybe wanting to be famous, wanting to be valued in some fashion, wanting to exist in a permanent way. So this is, this is clinging to becoming. And then conversely, there is clinging or desire for extinction, extinction, right? The wish to stop, the wish to climb into bed and pull the blankets over our heads so that we don't have to know anything, right? We can be insensate in effect. So were it not for our clinging or our craving or our desire, impermanence would not be a problem. Right? If we didn't need for it to be otherwise, impermanence would simply be impermanence. So this kind of wheel of dependent origination, um, it's a way of describing the arising of states of being, but it's not it's kind of like a creation myth, except that it has no beginning and it has no end. You know, there's no original cause in this um, that we can trace things back to. Um, that wheel, I wish I had an image of it. Um, it's usually depicted uh, with, a, with a snake, a pig, and a cock, you know, a rooster at the center of it, which are depictions of uh, hatred, delusion, and desire. <coughs> And it also is suggesting that in this process of becoming, this kind of cyclical business in which we're constantly recreating ourselves, it's, it's, um, it's impersonal. It's fundamentally impersonal. Our births are actually not an accident, nor are they decided as a deity, as a reward, or as a punishment, only by karma. So this is really natural law, right? There's no discussion about why it should happen to be this way. I was talking about this with, with folks at lunch. Um, you know, people were always pestering the Buddha to, to find out, you know, why is it like this? Why was I born? What happens after you die? You know, all manner of questions that the Buddha steadfastly refused. In fact, they've been kind of cataloged, and depending on what you read, there are either 11 or 14 questions that he simply refused to talk about because he said it's irrelevant. Um, and I may have a slide on this, but I'll, I'll just jump ahead anyway. There's this notion, um, the story about the, the man who's been shot by an arrow. And somebody says, quick, send for a surgeon to remove the arrow. And he says, not so fast. Let's find out who shot it. Right? Was it a highborn person? Was it a soldier? Was it, uh, what was the arrow made out of? What was the shaft made of? What kind of bird did the feathers come from? You know, and he won't let anybody remove this arrow until he's uh, had his questions answered. And, of course, the implication is... He's going to die getting his questions answered before he moves to the essential thing, which is the removal of the arrow. So many of the questions about how did this begin, why is it like this, why, why do we exist in this sphere, these were things he steadfastly refused to answer because he said they were irrelevant to the question at hand, which is how are we going to remove the arrow. If we stay strictly with experience... We just need to watch how one moment of suffering can give rise to the next moment of suffering and how clinging is, is implicated. 
Um, so, what is the relief or freedom from suffering? So, it is really uh, through overcoming the three marks, you know? That we are ignorant with regard to impermanence, uh, non self, and suffering. In essence, the suggestion is that we take that which is impermanent to be permanent. We take that which is empty of self to be possessing some kind of an enduring essential nature. And we take that which is a cause of suffering to be a cause of pleasure. And so in effect, any kind of freedom from suffering means relinquishing of these false understandings. You know, overcoming ignorance about the true nature of our existence. So in a sense, one of the things that we're doing in our meditation practice is we are examining our experience to establish uh, something about the truth of impermanence. You know, we are actually beginning to examine these three marks of existence at a kind of a molecular level in moment-to-moment awareness. So, there are clingings of several types that we are overcoming per the tradition. One of them is in the um, let me see here. Release is through overcoming ignorance of the three marks or clinging of the five types through conviction in the principle of karma and of our own actions. Persistence in abandoning unskillful qualities and developing skillful ones. Mindfulness concentration, and wisdom. So, you know, what does all of this look like? It's kind of hard to conceive. Uh, You know, you read much of the Buddhist literature and it talks about these superlative happinesses, this form of happiness beyond all happiness, beyond anything we can imagine. And, you know, I want that. Um, I don't know who has that precisely, but it's hard to conceive. Um... What is it pointing to? Well, I don't know. But the focus is again and again on becoming aware of the nature of our clinging. Um, Clinging like feeding, much like a plant feeds on soil or feeds on light. We're constantly trying to feed on our experience in order to find the satisfaction that we're looking for. And the dukkha, the issue of suffering, is not just what it is that we're feeding, we're, we're feeding on, but the very act of feeding, that constant effort to try to get something or make something out of our experience. So there is a, another slide. Um, let me see if I can pull it up this way again. Okay. So, this may be familiar to many of you. Um, From the late, great Buddha. Uh, Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress are suffering. Being attached to the unloved is suffering. Being separated from the loved is suffering. Not getting what one wants is suffering. Now, I've added the italics. I don't think the Buddha used italics. But I I think this is pretty interesting. Um, 
So in this, and I'm going to spend some more time on it, I think there are certain levels of things, if you will. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Death is suffering, right? Duh, right? These things are intrinsically difficult, you know? Uh, Aging, whew, (laughs) you know, not something that anybody would choose. But what's interesting here is that none of these things are particularly optional. They just come with the equipment, you know, if you are born and are fortunate, you're going to age and you will ultimately die. But then he goes further here and he, he talks about something else, which is being attached to the unloved is suffering, being separated from the loved is suffering. And what does that mean? Well, it certainly can mean, you know, the, the, the obvious ways that we can be separated from people who we love, the people we lose people, right? We lose our vision. We lose our memory. We lose our car keys, right? And in that process, there is suffering. Conversely, we suffer when we are in the presence of that which is unwelcomed. It might be a physical pain. It might be an obnoxious neighbor with a loud barking dog. It could be anything at all. And, of course, not getting what wants when wants is suffering. So I think that this is interesting because I think the latter part of this we might identify as arising in any moment of suffering. So in any moment when you notice that you are unhappy about something, is it not the case that you are somehow being compelled to be in the presence of that which is unwelcome, which could be an emotion, right? Or a pain or a memory. And in the same way, we may find that we are suffering because we are yearning for something that is not present. So this is a really useful device, I think, even at the level of practice. When we're practicing and we notice that there is a moment of suffering, it's because, in essence, we want it to be different from how it is. And, you know, there was the question yesterday, what, Michael, I think you had asked, is there a definition of suffering? This isn't precisely a definition, but I think that this is a mechanism that we can um, almost use to define it, which is that suffering exists in the desire for things to be other than how they are. And it doesn't matter what the particular content or object of our suffering is. If there is some desire or wish for it to be different from this, you know, then suffering arises. Check it out, right? So, you know, to the degree to which, you know, we can think about meditation in so many ways... I think one way to understand it is that we're examining suffering when it arises and we're examining happiness when it arises and boredom when it arises and restlessness and sleepiness, whatever it happens to be. But when we're sitting and we're kind of struggling a little bit and we're not happy with how it's going, it's really useful to then say, well, what is it that I'm, what, what is it that I want this to be like? What am I holding? What idea am I holding to? Um, about how this moment is supposed to be. Because the problem is arising in the delta, in the difference between what is actually present and how I wish for it to be. And so how does meditation address this? I'm going to probably spend a lot more time on this. Um, You know, if if indeed it is the case, and and I'm getting so ahead of myself here, but if it is the case that suffering arises because of the wish for things to be different from how they are. 
one of the things that we're doing in meditation is, first of all, noticing that this is true and redirecting our attention to whatever it is that is happening in the present, even if it is a moment that is um, difficult and unwelcomed and unpleasant. Almost, it's a kind of a funny dodge. Can I wish for things to be exactly as they are? You know? Can I surrender the need for it to be different from how it is and give myself fully, absolutely fully, to this moment in spite of whether it is to my liking or not? Right? In that moment, then we're kind of reversing that instinctive movement against what's unpleasant and toward what is pleasant. We're surrendering that need for it to be different from how it is. And so this is so interesting to me because what this is then suggesting is that if there's an antidote to suffering, it is to be found through the willingness to suffer. Right? This is such, such an interesting thing that the antidote is to be found in the poison itself. This makes so little intuitive sense. Right? If I am in pain... I want to take my hand off that burning stove as quickly as possible. It is absolutely consistent with the pleasure principle and with every instinct to try to run from what is painful and to try to move toward what is pleasant. And this is kind of suggesting that we're doing something counterintuitive. right? To actually stand unmoving as close to that fire as we can endure. You know? Because in that moment, what we've done is we've changed our relationship from one of avoidance or control or escape instead toward raising the question, can I be with this just as it is? Relinquishing the need for it to be other than how it is. Now, this is hard because one of the things that I've noticed, and this has not changed, when I'm suffering and I'm happy about something, I just don't like it. And that has never changed, Right? that pleasure principle, that urge to be away from what is unloved, um, it doesn't change. So the practice can always feel at times like it's, um, it's against the current. It's against the current of our own impulse, which is to wish for it to be other than how it is. So, you know, in... Um, I've gone way off script here, but okay. You know, where... In many of the traditions I've described, there's a kind of a description of why we suffer. Um, I don't think Buddhism particularly has an explanation for why we're like this. This is one of those 11 or 14 questions that's really uh, not the point. But I do think that the Buddhist approach to suffering is vests suffering with meaning, not meaning in the sense of an explanation of why me, you know, or how, who designed this crazy system. Rather, the meaning is derived from the fact that our freedom from suffering is to be found in the laboratory of our own experience of suffering. And therefore, when we are unhappy with something, and it could be just a pain in the knee while we're meditating, or it could be finding you know, a lump in our body and getting a life-threatening diagnosis, you know, it could be a, a flat tire, whatever it happens to be. It becomes a practice opportunity. And when we, when we actually begin to understand this, 
then the tendency to divide our experience into that which I love, that which I really detest, and that which I have no interest in, right? The way that we intuitively kind of um, respond to life in these habitual ways. Instead, what we begin to see is that even in moments of suffering, there's an enormous opportunity that's been handed to us to actually investigate. What am I clinging to? And so meaning, instead of becoming... Uh, remaining what it what it normally seems like, which is something oppressive, you know, the world is oppressing me. Instead, it becomes a kind of a welcome invitation. And I think this is what Shunru Suzuki meant when he talked about um, uh, the weeds in your garden. You know, not to shun the weeds because they actually turn out to be excellent fertilizer. So this. You know, this brings meaning not in the sense of some kind of a narrative meaning, but it gives a kind of a purpose. We get to put this all to use. So now, for instance, if if I am mindful enough to remember to do so, if I'm walking up the stairs and I'm feeling the pain in my knee, it's like, oh yeah, pain in the knee. Can I be with this? You know? Noticing my complaining mind. Noticing that there are associations to the future. What if this gets worse? You know, maybe I need to move to a place with no stairs someday. You know, all the things that we bring to it. Instead, it becomes a way to return to um, the fact of life, which is that life sometimes resembles pain in the knee. And that our suffering is evidence of life, you know, and is not an enemy to somehow be vanquished, but rather is an invitation for kind of growth and inquiry. So um, there is an expression, and I don't know where this came from. I don't know if it's the Buddha, but uh, the expression is that there is the suffering that leads to suffering, and there is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Right? What does that mean? What's the difference between those kinds of suffering? There is the suffering that leads to suffering, and there is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Yeah, but you got to say more than right. Not doing the second arrow. Yeah. So, so this is bizarre. If we're programmed to avoid what is unpleasant, this practice is actually swimming in the face, in, you know, against the current of our instinct to avoid. So the suffering knee pain is knee pain, no matter how you cut it. You know, it's it's old age. It's it's being. There's nothing good about knee pain. But we can. Um, the presence of that pain can lead to reactivity or it can lead to an inquiry, you know, directing toward. Thinking about the process of grieving. What about it? Suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Grieving. Grieving? It does. Uh, can you, I don't understand. Can you say more about...
So, it, certainly accepting. Yeah. So, I, I had a friend who had knee surgery. Anybody here ever had knee surgery? Yeah, I'm told that the recovery is really painful. And one of the things. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that she said was that in the early days of her recovery, the pain was so overwhelming that there was no fighting it. And in a sense, even though it was, it was extremely painful, it wasn't a problem because there was nothing to, nothing to be done. She was helpless. As the time passed, the painkiller started to get some purchase on the pain, but not entirely. And she said that her resistance to it then went through the roof and her suffering became much worse as the pain subsided because it engaged the need for it to be otherwise. You know, and she wasn't helpless anymore. You know? Um, you, you, you had... Yeah. Recovery from substance abuse is, uh, I think, a good example of suffering that leads to more suffering on the non-recovery side or suffering Yeah. Yeah. Um, I worked in a dual diagnosis kind of psychiatry and and addictions unit. And um, the worst detoxes that I saw were not opiates and they weren't alcohol. They were benzodiazepines, you know. And, And the reason why this was so difficult is that people became addicted to these medications because they wanted to be rid of the experience of anxiety and they developed a tolerance. And frankly, the moment you start to cut back on those medications, you get anxiety and you get it in abundance. And the very thing that you were taking them to avoid is now yours. And so recovery is nothing more than the willingness to begin to tolerate that which was truly intolerable. And most people, you know, were at the nursing station constantly looking for medication. But yeah, in this, in this recovery, it is the willingness to tolerate the absence of our ordinary avenues of escape and control, you know? That's hard. Yeah. Michael? Well, one doesn't need to do this practice. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think we get to be selective. See, we think that if we're going to practice, we're going to get happy, which means that we're not going to have to suffer the bad stuff. But, you know, the same friend who had um, the knee surgery was a serious Zen student, and she said that she uh, was asked by her teacher, why do you want to do this practice? And she said, because I want everything. And he said to her, yeah, you do this practice, you'll get everything. (laughs) And she said it was not until years later that she understood what he meant, which is that you get everything. We are surrendering the need for it to be different, which means that we are surrendering our complaints and our objections to the fact that things don't go our way. 
um, one of the things that I, I kind of spontaneously began to do in my own practice some years ago is I noticed that I was complaining a lot, and it wasn't fixing a thing. And in fact, I was just really annoying myself. So I resolved to really work actively with complaining. And what that meant first is when I had a, an urge to complain about somebody or something out loud, to just stop it. That, that's not that hard. The inner complaining, catching it is a little bit trickier. But to stop complaining, because frankly, all it does is it annoys me. <laughs> right? No? Yeah, Paige. the reality of what it was that I didn't want. I didn't even know how much, like, when you, you almost, like, it distorts the reality that you're, because you're so not accepting of it, you don't even actually know what the reality is that you're not accepting. And that's what has been really, and it, so when you say inquiry, are you thinking, like, just to get intimate with what reality actually is? Okay. Yeah, you know, who wants that? Um, but you sometimes know, it's actually a blessing. Like it's like okay, it gives you to actually be with what is, because so much anxiety is related to like I don't want this, I don't want this. Like you don't even know what it is you don't want until you're like okay, maybe this isn't as bad as I thought it was, or yeah. you know. Yeah, what we what we generate in our heads generally has a way of making it all worse. Yeah. You know, as Mark Twain said, the worst events in his life never happened. And, and this is what we do. This is the second arrow, right? When we begin to relinquish that, we actually find that the uh, optional part of the suffering uh, can drop away. We're still left with birth, death, old age, sickness, and so on. And I'll talk more about these different types of, of suffering. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of feeling around for what does this moment require. And if you get formulaic, then you can kind of get yourself boxed up. But it's hard for inquiry because we're so cognitive, especially as therapists, you know? Like, yeah. we're always problem solving. And so that's been a big edge for me, is how to not problem solve my meditation practice. You know? Yeah. So, among the factors of awakening, you know, there are seven of these, and. Um, you know, the first is mindfulness. The second is uh, investigation. Or you can call it inquiry or curiosity. And what does that mean? It's possible to invoke something that becomes like a big operation and then it gets confusing. And am I doing it in my thinking? You know, what does this actually mean? Um, here's what I find kind of useful. Um, so are, are some, you, some of you must be familiar with the Burmese approach to doing Vipassana, which is the noting method, Right. You're constantly softly noting everything that is arising and smaller and smaller increments of time. And, you know, 
And, um, and I did that for a while, and it took a long time to break the habit because I was naming everything, which at some point, you know, the purpose of that is to help redirect your attention and correct your aim so that you're bringing your attention directly at the thing that is arising. But at some point, it can get a little distracting and, and maybe even be unnecessary. But I have it kind of refined down to one note, and that note is this, right? So that's, I think, investigation, this. What is this? We ask ourselves, what is this? What is this breath? What is this sensation? What is this mood state or this energetic state? And the answer is to be found in the experience itself. We're not looking for something discursive. We're just redirecting our attention to whatever it is at this moment and investigating in the sense that we are attentive to it as if for the first time, you know, as if it is completely novel and letting it speak to us as it will. Something that I've found kind of stopping my my kind of phlegmatic humor, I guess it would be, um, is to just say, what if nothing's wrong? What if nothing's wrong in this moment, in this meditation? So I still ha- I'll still have the mourning. I'll still have the grief. I'll still have the heartbreak. But nothing's wrong. And so I, I drop all the, like, fixing efforting. So it, it just, you know, oh, there's nothing wrong with my suffering. Yay. Just like this. Yeah. It's okay. This is what suffering feels like. Oh, it feels like this right now. Yes. This is what suffering feels yeah. like. This is what anxiety yeah. feels like. Yeah. That this is, like. this is my human condition. I'm going to feel it. So the moment we say something to ourselves like, oh, yeah, this is what grief feels like, we've ceased making a project out of it, right? The only invitation is for it to be known exactly as it is, you know? And then it is just as it is. It becomes maybe unpleasant and unwelcomed, but not a complicated problem. You know, using the example that you you mentioned of grief, I I will just tell you in my my own experience, I remember when... Uh, my sister died, and um, the grief was really um, intense. It was intense. It was overwhelming, you know? But it was also, in some respects, not a problem at all because it squeezed everything else out, and there was just no argument. There was nothing to be done but to reside in that place of sadness and grief. It was uncomplicated. Now, in the clinical domain, you know, there's this category of complicated grief. And, and, you know, who decides what that is? I'll leave that to the, you know, to the writers of DSM. But that's when something else begins maybe to kick in, some kind of protracted rumination maybe when we start to argue with it. You know, one of the reasons why grief can be so complicated for people is because we, um, we think there's a right way to feel, right? You know? Why am I not sadder that this person died? Or why am I still sad three weeks later? You know? Or we're comparing our experience to some imaginary idea about what it's supposed to be. This is why I kind of hate those Kubler stages of, of loss, because it's a program that people compare themselves to. 
it's really useless and it's actually in some respects harmful because it provides the yardstick against, against which we're measuring our own experience. You know? and, the, and on that basis, we can start to become contentious. And that's when the suffering arises. The pain is real. But the contentiousness is the piece that is, at least in principle, optional. You know? So, you know, potential rabbit hole here. But uh, um, since you mention it, grasping occurs because of the mistaken notion that there is someone there to be grasping. There is someone to whom this is happening. And so at a deeper analysis, and I, we weren't, I wasn't going to go into this particularly, but... In the Buddhist view, if there is self, there is suffering. If there is suffering, there is self. It's because we imagine that this is in a personal a personal affront, that there is someone to whom this is happening. And that you know, and this can actually be seen in more or less ordinary experience. You know, as we continue to do our meditation practice, maybe we begin to find that things that were once personal don't seem so anymore. You know, in the analytic world, there was this description of things existing in a conflict, in a conflicted zone, and the conflict-free zone. So, for instance, um, if you're not afraid of dogs, dogs are in the conflict-free zone. You know, for someone else or at another stage in their life, the presence of dogs becomes a major issue. Well, by analogy, maybe we think about the selfing zone and the non-self zone, and the things that we find. Um, difficult and annoying and causing suffering are in the self-zone and everything else is in the non-self zone. So I, I worked with a fellow once in therapy who was there because he had tremendous anxiety and, and, um, he was a, and I suggested he meditate and he was a very um, sort of compliant fellow, was willing to try anything. And he really began to practice meditation. And, and one day he came in and he, he, he told me something really interesting. He said that Normally when he's with his wife and shopping, it's a pretty irritating experience because she needed to read the label on every product in the store before making a decision. She had to see every product to narrow it down. And he would really be impatient. you know. And there were benches in front of stores for impatient husbands. And he said one day they were in a sporting goods store. I don't know what she was shopping for, but she was doing her thing. And he was sitting and waiting for her. And when she finally finished up and made her selection, he was surprised. He was surprised by the fact that that familiar habit wasn't present. Right? It wasn't present. Somehow her taking her time was not a personal affront. No problem. Right? And this, by the way, I I think illustrates a few things. One of them is the way that practice works is that we, you know, we're gradually divesting ourselves of identification with all manner of phenomena. And again, points to this notion that nothing is ultimately personal. Although we are always riding the edge between what we are identifying with, what we take to be personal, and that which is not yet. But as we continue to practice, we can sort of see that line moving in some respects. Things that used to be problems for us, we may find 
just don't, they, we don't get hooked anymore. And this is the line of what we're identifying with. This is non-self in many respects. That many of the phenomena that we took to be something about me, because I either liked them or didn't like them, turns out to have nothing to do with me, and I don't need to pick that up. And so we begin to awaken and deliberate ourselves even by degrees. Right? Yeah. 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 Yep. Well, and it's it's not to be taken for granted. I mean, um, in the process of aging, and I'm sure you know people like this who who become terrified and they cling really tightly, and maybe they become particularly rigid or particularly judgmental and difficult to be with. And there are other people who, for whatever reason, as they approach aging, understand that they have to let go and begin to divest themselves of their cherished opinions, and they soften, you know? Yeah, pain grows, loss grows, but somehow there's a a letting go in in this sort of... um, And why it happens one way or the other, I think, is a little bit mysterious, you know? I want to give us a break. I'm just wondering when is the best time. This is the time? Okay, what do you need? 10 minutes? 15? Okay, 15. See you here soon. So it's worth examining. And if we do, we begin to find that behind any moment of suffering, there is clinging to something, what I was talking about before. No clinging, no suffering. And in this way, suffering is a signpost directing our attention. But it requires that we look really carefully and not superficially. Because if we're looking superficially, we're going to think it's the person who cut us off in traffic that made us angry, rather than recognizing that there's some other process that's going on, some some selfing going on. You can't do this to me. Right? And again, this is a, a bit more than, um, I don't want to go into depth on this, but <clears throat> you know, I, I, I've run this course on the application of Dharma to psychotherapy for, for years, so I have heard Andy Olensky do his deep dive into Buddhist psychology like 15 times. You know, and I'm still learning from it. But what, I re- I, what I've taken from it is um, a particular formulation of suffering and a particular formulation of self. So um, I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to mangle this for your benefit. <laughs> um, you know, in any given moment of experience, you know, 
we, um, there are a number of things that are occurring. There is you know, a sense object, like let's say an eye, coming into contact with light, with some object of um, vision. And the same could be said for you know, an ear, a nose, the body, the mind. Coming into contact with an object, giving rise to a moment of consciousness. Right? Um, okay, I could so distract myself. So um, co-arising with this. First of all, it's important to, to note that consciousness here is something that doesn't exist independent of these items. Rather, it is a product of certain conditions coming together. When there is no I, there is no perception of, no, there's no um, eye consciousness. When there's no smell in the air, we have no consciousness of smell. So consciousness itself is not antecedent or behind all of experience. It is constantly arising and passing when the conditions permit. Associated with every moment of arising, there are perceptions. And these, these are, these are the, the aggregates. I, I, you know, I hope you're familiar with them. You may not be. There is also um, sankaras, or formations. Um, I'll just call them formations. This is some kind of a construction in which uh, we are... Um, that, is infused with some kind of an action potential. It's kind of telling us what to do. It's maybe we might think of it as um, as what? What's the word I'm looking for? An intention, right? And they're quite subtle. And then the other piece that is coming up in every moment of experience is feeling, or vedana. Is that a new concept to anybody here? Okay, so vedana basically... It's often uh, translated as feeling, but it's not feeling in the sense of emotion. It is really the kind of hedonic tone that is associated with experience. So something we find classically, it's regarded as having three flavors, pleasant, unpleasant, and neither. And if it's pleasant, you know, we're drawn to want more of it. If it's unpleasant, we want to be away from it. And if it's neither, we tend to tune it out and pay no attention. And so this is happening in every moment successively, every moment of experience. What can happen is that maybe the Vedana is particularly strong. And, um, and so we respond to it with this pleasure principle, with this impulse to grab onto it, to try to reject it or to try to maximize that feeling. And when that feeling fully... I'm going to go through them all here. Look at that. Oh. Dry erase. Bad, bad moment there. When it gives rise to clinging, this is what was really interesting that I learned from Andy. Um, it is the clinging itself that gives rise to the perception of self. Right? Self is not doing the clinging. It is the clinging in response to Vedana, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, that is actually giving rise to the experience of a separate self. This is really interesting because subjectively, uh, you know, we think, it, I'm doing it. You know, I'm the one behind it. I'm the one who's reacting and driving it. But basically, in this model, when there is no clinging, there's no desire for it to be other than how it is, self does not arise as a phenomenon. Right? So what we think is antecedent 
to all experience, that self is there watching the whole show, is in fact popping up every time the conditions support it and disappearing other times. You know, Not a problem in and of itself. It's just another phenomenon. It is a very narrow band on the entire spectrum of our inner experience. The problem is that we tend to privilege it. Once it arises, we give it a kind of a, a major seat at the table, and we tend to think of it as being more real than it actually merits. And this is why it takes such close observation to begin to see how self comes and goes in our own experience. And, and, and you can, we can see this. You know, we can see this with close observation. And by the way, it's possible even to use your meditation as a direct investigation into the self. So I don't, I'm not going to say this to confuse you. That's just a bonus if it happens to work. And that is that when we, we can think about meditation as an investigation of the self, and it can be regarded as occurring in, in several ways. One of them is simply to watch experience. You know? And eventually the notion of what, you know, when self is arising and trying to take possession and so on will assert itself, and it can be noticed if we're paying close attention. Another way to go about it is actually to go about looking for it directly so that our meditation becomes some kind of a contemplation on who's doing this. Who is this happening to? Right? When we do this, it is easy to imagine that because I'm thinking, it is the thinking one. You know, It is the thinking that is the self. The self is doing the thinking or the thinking is belonging to the self and these experiences are happening to the self. But we raise the question, you know, uh, Who's doing this? Who's meditating? You know? And this is a kind of a direct investigation. You see this kind of thing a lot in Zen. You can play with it. I wouldn't get too deeply stuck in it. But it's an interesting inquiry. Because ultimately, I think all of our meditation is kind of headed in this direction. Because um, where there is self, there is suffering. Sure. Perception that precludes itself. I mean, I think perception and mental formation come kind of after breathing. No. No. So perception. These are all arising. Something as a cat, but you see it as a dog. Are we too? You know, doesn't that suggest that you're you and I'm me kind of thing? Or no? Okay. No. No, this perception, and I'm gonna, I would do a, a bad job of trying to echo what, what Andy has taught, but some of these things are absolutely baked into the arising of every moment, and some of them are sort of created. Yeah. Those things that have a ka sound, uh, sankara, and um, what's the term for perception? I've forgotten, but in the Pali, these are things that are more or less conditioned, you know, that our perceptions come out of our experience. But they're unbidden, and they're not a product of selfing at all. They're just arising. Now, the problem is that it is possible for us to begin to, once self arises, for us to begin to identify with and claim ownership of every one of these particular aggregates. You know? And um, so that we can think that it is my perception, or the perception is happening within me, or that the formations are somehow mine. They're fundamentally impersonal events, but taken together, this is what constitutes the experience of you from moment to moment. And when it, when it spills over, into, when Vedana winds up spilling over, when we want respond to this feeling tone with some kind of clinging, the self is born, and now we're in hell. 
right? Clinging leads to selfing, and selfing, when there is self, there is suffering, and when there is suffering, there is self. And so, for instance, in the example uh, that you were offering, um, I've forgotten your name, um, when things seem to start to become <coughs> impersonal, there's no, no particular suffering because the self is not implicated. Right? So this is pretty interesting, and it, it begins to point out, first of all, the persistence of suffering, even though the mind might be still, because those seeds of attachment and identification are get really, really subtle, you know? And in fact, um, you know, in the classical stages of awakening to be found in Theravadan Buddhism, it's understood that with each successive stage, and there are four of them, certain so-called fetters, obscurations begin to fall away. Now, at the first stage of awakening, uh, clinging to personality view begins to erode. And I think this is the first recognition of the possibility or that, that the self is... Um, is mutable, you know. It doesn't mean that it's vanished. And in fact, uh, one of those fetters um, that is the last to go, you know, and the final the final stage of becoming a fully awakened Buddha, is what's called mana or conceit. So what this is suggesting to me is that we can have very deep insight into the role of self, and it can become deeply attenuated. But until we are fully awakened, the tendency of the mind to kind of identify with these particular aggregates is always a, a potential and can always get stimulated again. So the absolute liberation from suffering, such that it can never arise again, seems to be the exclusive domain of an arhat, or a fully awakened Buddha. That's pretty steep. That said... I don't, I actually believe there is something, um, I think we do awaken by degrees as well. You know, as we continue to do our practice, and I hope people see this, that it benefits them, right? We begin to allow things to be that formally we would tend to pick up and engage in as though they were mine. You know? Yeah. I think that would be sankara formations, you know. I'm a little fuzzy about the. I don't know those terms. Perceptions or formations? You know, perception is the simple recognition of something, you know. So you hear a dog bark, and instantaneously it's like you know it's a dog. And, you know, being able to discriminate things based on previous experience. Uh, formations. I've struggled with understanding this for a long time. Here's how I understand it, and, but I may be wrong. I think of it as what we're up to. You know, we're always up to something. You know, you walk into a room. Well, I don't think perception necessarily requires that one labels it. It can be known even before the language kicks in. It could. Friend or foe. Yeah. Yeah. So a real beginner's mind wouldn't label it at all. I suppose not. I suppose not. You know? 
treating these things as a new arising rather than through the lens of previous experience leading to memory and expectation, you know? Anyway, um, yeah, yeah, Richard. Uh, our formation is what we uh, commonly uh, term uh, our narrative, uh, how we, what we say to ourselves to explain the world based on these, uh, the, our, our, the aggregate, I mean, in, in terms of this Buddhist psychology model. So I'm not exactly sure where those narratives belong. I think what winds up Another way of understanding this is that um, you know we're going through this cycle again and again, and we're practicing something, and it's getting reinforced. And um, those are really creating certain dispositions. You know, the more we engage in hostile activity, the more hostile a person we become. And those narratives are kind of following from those those dispositions. You know, they become latent or manifest dispositions. Are those strictly speaking uh, sankaras? I, I'm not sure. I've heard a lot. I've read a lot of contradictory stuff on this, um, so I'm not sure. That's where I'd put it. Yeah. All right. You know, to me, it's interesting that if there is suffering, there's self-involved. So what, what would pain look like in the absence of self? Right? I'm sure it would be painful. You know, I don't think the absence of self is going to take away grief or knee pain. But it becomes uncomplicated. Um, Michael, you had a question earlier. Wishing it would go away, wishing it would end, wishing it didn't happen isn't getting me anywhere. So you were saying I need to be with it. But what does that mean, really, operationally, other than saying those words? Right. So here we're talking about the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Again, not in the way that we want. You know, I don't know about you, but certainly in practice, very often we're willing to turn toward difficult experience because we've um, got this clever little dodge that says, okay, I'll be with it, with this if it'll just go away. Right. Right? So we're, we're making some kind of a bargain, which is, of course, not really where it's at. What we're really willing, <coughs> trying to do as best we can is by turning toward it and allowing it to be known as it is, we're surrendering our need for it to be different from how it is. Right? The willingness to be with suffering with full attention with an attitude of compassion, acceptance, curiosity, right? Yeah, no judgment. This is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. It's not in the suffering itself. It's in the way that we hold it. And this requires some training because it's not enough just to say, oh, now I'm anxious, right? I mean, we can have simple awareness. Mindful awareness is really not the same as ordinary awareness, right? It certainly begins with ordinary awareness, which is what we already innately know how to do, but it takes that capacity of mind 
and it deepens it through systematic training to vest it with those qualities of curiosity, of non-judgment, of steadiness, right? That we're keeping our attention right on that point for as long as it makes sense to do so with an attitude of acceptance. And this doesn't come easily. And this is where uh, the path is actually uh, a mental training. We need to train the mind to do it because the mind will always want to slip away. It'll always want to be turning away. And so there are a number of contrivances in practices that help us to do this. Right? What are those contrivances, I, I hear you ask? Um, one of them is the posture. Right? When we are sitting perfectly still, it enables us to keep our mind and attention in one place. Once we start wiggling, it begets more wiggling. You know, it becomes a bit of a distraction. It's so interesting, you know, this morning I'd suggested sitting without moving, just as a kind of an experiment. You know, and in Zen they make a big deal of this. Um, a fellow I knew who was a, a Zen teacher said that as an athlete, he, he would sometimes have enormous pain because his muscles were so tight. And at one point the pain was so great that he started to pass out and fall over, and the Jiggy Jitsu, who's the kapo, you know, the Zen kapo in the room, yelled at him, no moving! <laughs> he passed out. So, you know, it can become a kind of a weird discipline, but it is really interesting when you're sitting, and, you know, we're kind of bored, and we want something to happen, and you're just wiggling your toes a little bit, you know? The least little bit of movement is the, as if it's big entertainment, you know? So, you know, it's an interesting experiment to set that aside because it is a support to surrendering to this just as it is. So it's important to get a good, comfortable posture to start, but then to stop engaging in the business of correcting it. Because in that way, we begin to see the mind that constantly wants to make it a little bit better. But I was headed somewhere else with that. Oh, yeah, the the various supports we have to doing this work. The posture. The posture is really useful because um, when we're still, we can be more attentive. You know, we can actually grow in concentration. And that's maybe the second support. If we were simply mindful without concentration, it would be like uh, blowing in the wind. You know, we could really be tossed around by intense experience. Concentration, which grows, you know, commensurate with mindfulness is really valuable because it gives us a degree of uh, steadiness, of steadfastness of mind, which makes it possible to sit still in the face of what would otherwise knock us off our seat. So by itself, concentration is really useful because it calms the mind. You know, It doesn't last for very long once we get up off the cushion, but it does enable us to, um, to be steadfast. So that's another support. Still another is the support of the, the sangha, right? I mean, it's just too embarrassing to run screaming from the room when other people are meditating with you. And you know that other people are in there and doing it as well. They can do it, maybe I can do it. So this allows us to stand really close to that heat. Still another support, we might say, is um, the teachings, right? We are given reason to understand why all of this is beneficial, and we get a steady infusion of the teachings because it provides us with motivation to keep going when otherwise it can begin to feel kind of arid or just too difficult. Right? Um, 
Yeah, so those are some of the supports. You know, we have, we have other supports in psychotherapy. Um, and by the way, the reason I mention this is because it goes to this question of, you know, what are we trying to do in turning toward this experience? You know, one of the things that we're doing in therapy is we're allowing people to talk about difficult stuff that maybe they couldn't do either with others or even in the privacy of their own minds. But for whatever reason, in the presence of a trusted relationship, it becomes possible to investigate and talk about that which was too difficult to tolerate before. So the presence of another person, the expectation of confidentiality, right? The predictability of the hours, you know, that we're going to start and stop, you know, at a particular time. The expectation that the clinician has some knowledge and expertise. And the expectation that the clinician will be able to hold and tolerate whatever it is that we offer. I think that these point to a kind of a common factor between the healing potential of both meditation and psychotherapy. And that is one of the things that we're simply learning to do while we think we're up to something clever, we're just learning how to not turn away. We're learning how to stand close to the fire and relinquish our our fear that we're going to get burned. And we discover that we can hold more and more and more. So in this respect, we're not getting anything and we're not losing anything. What we're doing is growing in the capacity to stand fully in the center of our lives as they're happening without regard to whether they're difficult or easy. Right? This is what Joko Beck was talking about. You know, We're not going to get anything, but we're going to learn to surrender our constant incessant bargaining for a better future. And I've completely lost contact with your question, but I, I think I'm, I was in the neighborhood. <laughs> okay. Sometimes that does make sense to sort of step away when things are too uncomfortable yeah. under certain circumstances. Yes. People hear that comment? Yeah. It's useful to step away at times. Yeah, I mean, you can get really punishing of, of oneself. And, and having come out of Zen, I learned not to move. And, um, and I spent a lot of time in a lot of pain. And what did I learn from that? I can do that. It wasn't that helpful at some point. And the big revelation was, I don't have to do that. <laughs> you know? Um, this is a practice to overcome suffering, not to inflict it. The suffering will come, right? But we're not out there to you know, wear hair shirts and, 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 and inflict something on ourselves. So yeah, and, and this is you know one of the things that we're learning to do is how to work wisely with ourselves, and that means knowing when to fold, you know, knowing when to stop practicing. Um, yeah, what is your experience telling you about what the moment calls for? I, I had worked with a guy um, many years ago, who was a very earnest Zen student, uh, Vipassana student, and. Um, he had entered a, entered a field, a human service field, which he loved, except that he would go to his field work placement and he had dread, only dread. And he didn't know why. And he went to his meditation teachers and they said, be mindful of the dread. You know? And he was very dutiful about that. And he did that repeatedly for the longest time and the dread didn't uh, relinquish, didn't, uh, didn't lift. So um, a friend of mine was a consultant to this meditation center, a friend who was a psychologist who suggested maybe he see a therapist. So, so I saw him, and um, he told me about the dread that he was experiencing, and, and here was my intervention. I said, 
are you sure you're in the right field? <laughs> right? You know, maybe the wise action there was that his experience was trying to tell him something, that this wasn't right. And you can't meditate your way out of something like that. You know? We need to learn how to take care of ourselves and listen to what our bodies and our minds are telling us and not become heroic. Yeah, the serenity prayer, right? So that, yeah, that is wisdom. And one of the things that we're learning is we're writing the operator's manual for this organism and trying to figure out what does the moment need. And we can get, you know, it's really useful to adopt a discipline and stick with it. And it's really useful to know when to let that go as well. So when I sit in the mornings, uh, what I'm going to do depends entirely on the quality of my mind at the moment. You know, sometimes it's just, sitting, sometimes it's watching the breath, sometimes I have to count breaths because my mind is utterly a renegade, you know? So there's no formula for this. This is what we're teaching ourselves. Uh, And we have available to us, presumably, a kind of a, a toolbox that we can pull from. And that toolbox might include concentration, in other words, just the breath, with not a second thought. It might mean touching into whatever else is arising. It might involve really investigating whatever else is arising as the primary object of awareness, you know, bringing our attention fully into the experience of anxiety or into back pain, for instance. Or that toolbox may have nothing to do with meditation. And in fact, what we need to do is ask ourselves, why does this keep coming up? Because maybe it's trying to tell us something, like this guy in his career, right? So this is not a one-size-fits-all. We need to actually learn how to take care of ourselves by applying the right methods of investigation based on what, what works for us. And that's one empirically, you know, that we learn over time. Well, well, let me ask you this. Your friend. Yes, we shall remain nameless. Yes. Does he or she become happy by saying you should be able to be happy right now? As opposed to saying, I should be able to be happy right now? Yeah. Or yeah. I should be able to be happy because I'm here forever. So grin and bear it. It's more of a like, okay, 
And it's not going to be like this 10 minutes from now or 10 days from now. Yeah. And finding some, just some peace and solace in knowing that everything's temporary. That's right. So why get yeah. I remember somebody on retreat saying, look, in any given moment, one of three things is going to happen. What is occurring to you now is going to get worse. It's going to stay the same or it's going to get better. Mystery solved. And which of these is none of your business? You know, as for this notion of saying I should be able to be happy right now, to me, that sounds like an expression of aversion. You know, an effort to push away or to or man, manipulate experience. Because what happens, you know, when I do that, if I have an emotion and I try to chase it away, it doesn't use, it's not useful. Yeah, I'm just trying to push it away and now I'm engaged in a struggle with myself. It's much more convenient to be able to say, I'm really unhappy right now. And this is what that unhappiness feels like. Can I be with it as it is? And I drop the agenda for it to be different from this? And the answer is sometimes, often, no, I can't. But that's the effort. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So for me, this is pointing to this like dark side of mindfulness where um, you know, corporations bringing it in, school systems bringing it in, to put the onus on an individual to be compliant and functional in a system that is not supporting them. So it's when I'm mindful enough, I'll put up with all of it, right? I'll be a good cog in your wheel to keep your system going. So, um, you know, throwing mindfulness at uh, places where there's there is injustice. There is something that's unsupportive. You know, I think um, it turns us from the outward view into it's all, you know, if I practice hard enough, I can, you know, happiness lives within. I can transcend my suffering. And I don't do the practical thing of acknowledging <laughs> this condition is not supporting my happiness, you know, and and I think, you know, the Buddha is talking about empirical, try it, how is it working out for you? It's like, if you, if you're just filled with dread every day, you know, and I have experienced plenty of that, um, at some point, you know, it was like, oh, letting go of trying to stuff myself into a system that isn't nurturing for me. And it's like, does that make me a bad Buddhist? And then it was, you know, having to really deal with that idea of, oh, it's renunciation of all this, the expectation, and that I'm gonna be able to practice my way out of it, too. So, you know, I see, uh, you know, instead of putting money into (laughs) fixing the, the, you know, to shorter hours or to more time off. Oh, we'll train people in mindfulness so they'll put up with more crap. Yep. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, this is part of the interest that corporations have in mindfulness is they yeah. want, you know, it's often spoken of in terms of job satisfaction, which is reasonable. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of it is to try to limit absenteeism, 
uh, presenteeism, and to stop turnover. You know, so mindfulness in the service of social control and capitalism. I don't know. These are legitimate concerns, but it goes back to your uh, invoking the um, serenity prayer. You know, what is what does it actually require? At some point, you know, maybe you need to leave your job. And we don't want to use mindfulness to allow ourselves to adjust to uh, an unjust system. I think that's what I was saying about trusting, I just call it my gut. Whatever is like, you know, helping me figure out my path, like I fully trust it. I talk about it with other people. I mean, I don't just hear the voice of God and think I'm on it. Like, but I think it's hard to something feels unjust, then I'm like, well, fuck this. Like, we're going to change this right now versus, okay, this feels like I'm just trying to fight because I'm, I have to look at myself. You know, in relationships, when I have a partner who mirrors and shows me who I am, that's really uncomfortable. But it's something that I need to go through. I'm sure <coughs> to go through because I want to work on those things within myself that I don't really like looking at. There you go. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, I wonder if you've ever gone with your gut and found out that your gut had dyspepsia or something, you know? But, you know, one of the things that we're learning uh, over time in our practice is discernment, you know, clear seeing. And indeed, the more we practice, the more we can kind of clear out the dross of our accumulated assumptions and well-practiced ideas in the favor of seeing clearly. And indeed, a lot of problems fall away because we realize that we were just caught up in some kind of uh, familiar cycle of thinking. You know? And in this way, it's not that our problems are solved. It's that we gradually begin to deprive them of oxygen. We just spend less of our time there because we realize that maybe we had set up... I mean, I remember, this is a foolish example, but when I had kids, we moved to the suburbs and I was terrified because I thought the suburbs were a spiritual suicide. You know? I grew up in the suburbs. Well, guess what? It's just a place to live. But, you know, I had this idea, and I, so I really resisted it. It was just an idea in my head, you know? Okay. Notes? Okay, here's a quote from C.S. Lewis, pertinent to something, I'm sure. Try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you will find that you have excluded life itself. Right? So this goes back to this notion that by turning toward experience, we're opening ourselves not just to the good stuff, but to all of it, but without resistance. The alternative, and we might say that the alternative is well described, for instance, by neurosis, which is that we're trying to twist our experience into um, some impossible mold to 
uh, to make it tolerable to ourselves. And in the process, in the effort to try to make things or only attend to the things that we like and make our experience to our liking, what we wind up doing is shutting out much of life because we've now categorized the world of our experience into that which is to my liking and that which is not. And it's an, a, an incessant and effortful problem to try to control one's experience in this way. It's a little like, uh, like death because we're shutting ourselves off to so much of life experience. You know, these poems that I've been describing, I'm, I'm going to read you another one. You know, they're basically saying, yeah, life, it is really hard, right? Hard stop. That's it. And let's stop, you know, that last poem was stop imagining that it's anything other than that because um, we're willing to open our, this this is obviously an act of tremendous courage because we're going to allow ourselves to suffer, you know? But it's real, it's authentic. So I'm going to give you another poem. I have it queued up here. Uh, Here we go. I've got a couple of them here. Relax. This is by um, Ellen Bass. Relax. Bad things are going to happen. Your tomatoes will grow a fungus, and your cat will get run over. Someone will leave the bag with the ice cream melting in the car, and throw your blue cashmere sweater in the dryer. Your husband will sleep with a girl your daughter's age, her breasts spilling out of her blouse. I didn't write this, okay? (laughs) Or your wife will remember she's a lesbian and leave you for the woman next door. The other cat, the one you never really liked, will contract a disease that requires you to pry open its feverish mouth every four hours. Your parents will die. No matter how many vitamins you take, how much Pilates, you'll lose your keys, your hair, and your memory. If your daughter doesn't plug her heart into every live socket she passes, you'll come home to find out your son has emptied the refrigerator, dragged it to the curb, called the used appliance store for pickup drug money. There's a Buddhist story of a woman chased by a tiger. When she comes to a cliff, she sees a sturdy vine and climbs halfway down, But there's also a tiger below, and two mice, one white and one black, scurry out and begin to gnaw at the vine. At this point, she notices a wild strawberry growing from a crevice. She looks down, she looks up, and at the mice, and then she eats the strawberry. So here's the view, the breeze, the pulse in your throat. Your wallet will be stolen, you'll get fat slip on the bathroom tiles of a foreign hotel and crack your hip. You'll be lonely. Oh, taste how sweet and tart the red juice is, how the tiny seeds crunch between your teeth. Right? You want to hear the other one? This is like a compendium of depressing poetry. This, this is similar. This is by Jack Gilbert, and it's called A Brief for the Defense. Sorrow everywhere. Slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else, with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn could not be made so fine. 
The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness of their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There's laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness and resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. (laughs) We must admit that there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship anchored late at night in the tiny port looking over to the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. It still moves me. really moves me. This isn't the vision we have of perfect happiness, right? But it is the willingness to meet life as it is, right? So, what have I got here? Oh, I have wrote in here, and I don't know apropos of what, but I said, uh, on, the, on the matter of being born, it's curious that we never see newborns laugh or smile. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, okay, back to that quote, sorrow, lamentation, pain, and sadness. I won't put it on again, because you've seen enough. So some commentaries on this. One of them is that sorrow is the burning in the mind. Its function is to completely consume the mind. So as in grief or sadness or loss, and the object of our sorrow must be let go of before suffering, before comfort can be felt. Lamentation is described as the point when suffering, be, when sorrow becomes too strong to bear and it bursts forth in weeping and wailing. And it's basically a kind of an unhelpful response. And then pain Um, This is referring really from the smallest irritation to enormous physical agony. And grief, um, the poly term here is uh, dominasa, which means, translates roughly as bad-mindedness. So grief is cultivating unwholesome states by indulging. In other words, grief is what is trying to describe here things like um, resenting old age, you know, or resisting the coming of death. These, um, these are second arrows. Uh, and again, um, I'm gonna, I have a slide on this, but I'm just going to read it to you instead. This metaphor of the two arrows, which you've heard mentioned, uh, deserves going over. Uh, this is again from the suttas. When afflicted with a feeling of pain, those who lack inner awareness suffer sorrow, grieve, and lament. 
beating their breasts and becoming distraught. So they feel two pains, right? physical and mental. It is just like being shot with an arrow and then right afterwards being shot with a second arrow so that they feel two arrows. So I think you know, this, is, this is really a wonderful description. There is that pain that is perhaps inescapable, the pain of birth, death, old age, sickness, and so on. And the Dharma is not going to save us from those fates. But the relationship to it, right? this is the second arrow. We can meet it with lamentation, with resistance, with shaking an angry fist at the gods that this should be our fate. And then we wind up suffering it in a different way. Like the difference between you know, the two geriatric patients, one of whom is getting constant care and the other, you know. So in the Vishuddhamaga, the Vishuddhamaga, I can't remember when it was written, but it was this compendium of um, meditation techniques uh, written as a commentary. It describes sorrow as like uh, the cooking oil in a pot over a slow fire. Lamentation is like it's boiling over the pot when cooking over a quick fire. Despair is like what remains in the pot after it is boiled over and is unable to do any more, do so anymore, going on cooking in the pot until it dries up. I don't know. I don't know if that clarifies anything. Yeah? Just the distinction here between we're going to have feeling, it's the language, I think. Sorrow, sorrow here implies a resistance to the pain as opposed to just pain and sadness and grief. I think so. I mean, we, we might think of sorrow as being a first arrow, which would be reasonable. And so I, I wouldn't put too much in these translations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So elsewhere, in the suttas, the dukkha, suffering is described as, again, separation from what is loved, association with the unloved, and not getting what one wants. And, you know, honestly, wishing for it to be otherwise is pretty powerless. You know, it basically amounts to the kind of complaining that serves no purpose but to annoy ourselves and others and make things worse. So we can pick this apart, this business of the two arrows a little bit, and we can assume that we know what we mean by suffering. But conventionally, of course, we tend to conflate the notion of pain and suffering. And we've already kind of covered this ground. But it's useful to emphasize because um, these are, at least in principle, distinguishable in experience. But it takes really close attention. So for instance, somebody cuts us off when we're driving. Boom, I'm angry. You did this to me. right? This is our ordinary conventional way of thinking because um, I know why I'm angry. It's because of what you did. What we actually miss is the fact that somebody's driving badly. That's just the first arrow. That's simply what is happening. Our response to it is what gives us suffering. And indeed, our anger is our own conditioned response. But it comes up, it comes up, um, you know, it arises so quickly in association with the bad driving that we don't distinguish these experiences. And it takes a great deal of discernment to begin to see that an event occurs and then there's a kind of a, a reaction to it and that they are not inevitably linked. In fact, in principle, there is no inevitable way to feel about anything whatsoever. Right? But it takes a great deal of discrimination here. So, um, 
I have this as a slide, but I'm just going to put it up here. Um, this may be familiar to you. Just another way to illustrate this. No, that's wrong. Now, this is a little imperfect, but I think it illustrates the point. So there's pain. There's birth. There's death. There's loss. There's all of this. There's stubbing your toe and, you know, getting a scratch in your new car, whatever it happens to be, right? And that simply happens. But it, in this, pain is not equal to suffering. Suffering is actually a product of this intermediate, this mediating variable that I'm, I'm calling resistance, but we can call it anything at all. At all. And so my friend Ron likes to give the example that, um, let's say you have completed all of your chores. It's a perfect day. You're going to sit in the hammock and read a book and all the conditions are just right for you to have a terrific day. And then you start to hear the sound of a mosquito. <coughs> you know, you know it's looking for a, an unprotected spot. Here. You know? Now, the pain of a mosquito bite is minuscule, right? You're not, you may not even notice it, but the resistance to it is enough for you to give up, fold up your hammock, and go back inside. So there's a bit of suffering. It may not be enormous, but it's not the pain of the mosquito bite, but the resistance or the expectation, right? Conversely, if resistance, if this were a mathematical formula and this were to drop to zero, then whatever the pain is, there's no suffering that is arising. It's just pain, you know? It's just grief that is overwhelming and uncomplicated because there's no contentiousness associated. And so, for instance, we might be faced with some enormous pain like uh, imminent death. And maybe you have known people who, when faced at the hour of death, realized there was no more struggle to be had, there was nothing more to be done, and truly let go. These people can sometimes become absolutely radiant. And people, I'm sure you've heard this, people who have had life-threatening illnesses have been heard to say things like, I wouldn't wish it, but I'm not sorry it happened. Because of the lesson that they, they learned, which was they learned to begin to give up on all of their plans and all of their expectations for themselves and instead really embrace life as it is. And in those moments, whatever their pain is, there's a kind of a, a radiant willingness you know, that, that suffering really abates. So I think this, even though it's a little bit ham-fisted of a formula, I think it really points to the nature of suffering, that suffering is not intrinsic in the events as they occur. It's always to be found in our relationship to it, which might be one of, we can say resistance, but we can substitute instead the term craving or desire or aversion. Right? That the fact that things are happening that is not to our approval, you know, through the simple fact of impermanence, is not a problem until we start to impose something on it. And this means that every time that we are suffering, when we turn our attention to it and we inquire, what is it that I'm holding to? What idea about how is it supposed to be? 
to the degree to which we can relinquish that even just a little bit, our suffering abates. So this is such an interesting path to uh, alleviating suffering. Um, it's interesting to me because it doesn't mean we've got to be better people, you know, or fix our personalities, you know, or strive to perfection. It's something that is invoked in every moment, potentially, of every moment of a waking life. So it has this enormous virtue of um, convenience. <laughs> You can do this wherever you are. It's hard. The mind doesn't want to stay with what is difficult. And therefore, when we move away from it, we're engaged in some kind of rejection or resistance. And then we're actually perpetuating the problem. So it's my sense that the hardest part of doing mindfulness is not actually doing mindfulness. It's to remember to do it. You know? because the mind perpetually is instead invoking its habitual habits of avoidance and control and, and escape. And, you know, the term for, that most translates as mindfulness, the term sati, right, is, I think, etymologically related to the notion of recollection. Um, recollection. And, and I, I find that kind of curious, because we're not recalling. We're trying to actually be in the present. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not clear about that. You know, some people have said that anytime we're being mindful, we're kind of catching the moment that just passed. And in that sense, we're, as best we can, calling that to mind. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's the recollection of the teachings, which is to say we're being mindful by invoking the, um, the reminder to be present. You know? Anyway, I find it kind of curious. So, not ready. At least in principle, again, this means that suffering, that pain may be inevitable or inescapable, you know, if you're born. But the suffering, in principle, is also optional. Um, So, um, actually, I'm going to turn on a slide here. Damn gravity. Um, Seriously? There is nothing about... There we go. Um, So this is from a a monk. You know, the question had come up, what is it? How do we define suffering? And as I said at the time, I think the the best we can wind up doing is to come up with a bunch of synonyms for it. Uh, Here's one from a a monk. Name is Angarika Sugatananda who describes suffering as disturbance, irritation, dejection, worry, despair, fear, dread, anguish, anxiety. I don't actually need to read all of these. These are basically just words that we use to discriminate different kinds of suffering. Right? Again, we know it when we, when we see it. In Dukkha, in the Pali commentaries, in the Pali commentaries, Dukkha is uh, sometimes described as that which is hard to bear. 
Right? Again, it's a little bit circular. Um, there's a Thai forest master, Ajahn Mahabua, who said it is whatever puts a squeeze on the heart. Um, and uh, etymologically, dukkha is apparently related to um, one association is that it is like an ill-fitting axle. You know, if you can imagine a wagon where the axle is ill-fitted and it just keeps uh, bumping every time it uh, it revolves. So I, you kind of like that, right? Because it's, it's bad friction. It's like, this is not to my liking. And, you know, and, and even that subtle sense of unwelcome friction is sometimes found in the very best of moments. You know, maybe you have set, this, set up the circumstances for a really fine day. You know, you bought some concert tickets and you're with friends and everything is perfect and it's like yeah okay it's nice but it wasn't what you wanted it wasn't what you expected it wasn't how you felt the last time you had gone to a concert which was elevated right we don't really get to choose some of the time it is this very subtle sense of not quite what i wanted you know i wanted more As with all Buddhist teachings, these definitions and descriptions are not taken to be ultimate doctrinal statements about reality, but about an observation about the lived experience for humans. No one is saying that suffering is baked into the nature of external reality. We're just saying that if you're a human, isn't it true that these are things that are sometimes known to you? There's also no claim that dukkha, that all of life is dukkha or that life is... Um, only dukkha, only that we experience life as dukkha, right? So it's our human response to conditions and not baked into conditions themselves. The Buddha stressed that all conditioned phenomena are innately stressful. All conditioned phenomena, anything that comes into, that arises as a consequence of conditions are innately stressful and are marked by dukkha even when there is obvious pleasure. This is a kind of a subtle thing to begin to note. The only thing that is not marked by dukkha is nibbana, right? the unconditioned. But we can only even get there through our compounded and conditioned experience. You know? So this life, with its suffering, is the vehicle to our awakening. Conditioned experience is only stressful when it is accompanied by clinging, So there's suffering in two senses, that all conditioned phenomena give rise to suffering, and then when we cling, it manifests as as mental pain. Um, So we can make a lot of our minor dukkha, but the Buddha suggested that even minor sources of suffering or dissatisfaction, even that kind of low-level hum of not quite how we wanted it to be, these are worthy of examination as well. And in fact, are probably easier to examine than when it becomes overwhelming. They're worthy of examining because they open us up to something more positive or a higher form of happiness. So examining our suffering has a higher purpose. You know, there's a point to it, of examining how we can turn ordinary experience into suffering through clinging. You know? Okay, so there are different kinds of suffering, but this is a bit of a longer 
disquisition. I think I'm going to save that so that I, I needn't interrupt it. We're five minutes to dinner. I mean, take the moment for questions, or you can just, you know, run howling from the room. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking that I don't know if the term agency is more of a 20th century term or something, but I was just thinking how <coughs> we don't get in our culture, you know, in our culture, we meet suffering, we learn resistance, you know, we learn, you know, that we learn to suffer and we don't learn alternatives that give us agency. I mean, there's energy Yeah. Yeah, I think our dissatisfaction is um, fueled because uh, it sells products. Yeah. You know? It's been said that um, in the capitalist model, um, everything is based on the notion of limitless want and desire, but limited resources. So that we're always being encouraged to consume. The Buddhist model flips that on its head, and it actually suggests that maybe there are limitless resources and limited want. If we have limited want, right, then everything becomes kind of abundant. But that does not drive a good economy. And, and you know, it's obvious when you look at the, um, at the media, the way in which it, it fans our insecurities and continually develops products and then has to cultivate the need for them, you know, in order to sell them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, this business of uh, you know unlimited desire has really wreaked havoc, you know, on the earth. And um, similarly, you know, why do we continue to have wars, right? Well, you know, one could have a sophisticated political analysis of this, but from one perspective it comes down to a simple fact, which is that despite all of our, the advancements of civilization, the endurance of greed, hatred, and delusion in the human heart remains unchanged. And so there will be conflict. All right, dinner. See you later.